You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. With you. We finally come to our last topic, Neil. It's been a bit of a marathon, this chat, but I really enjoyed it. And Me I too. hope you have as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, let's talk about our last topic, and it's the it's the one that everyone looks forward to, and especially this year, another Lord's Test will host a, mm-hmm. another Ashes Test, and we're going to be talking about the Ashes. And the Ashes and, and Lords have a big connection, Neil. Um, just, uh, we already mentioned it before, the first Test match against England and Australia at Lords was back in 1884. Um, so what can you tell us from that first Test match in terms of a historical point? Well, the, the interesting historical point about that first Test match at Lords in 1884 is nobody was talking about the Ashes because they'd been forgotten about. Yeah. Um, it was a short-lived joke at the time. I'll, I'll recap the story in case some of uh, your listeners aren't familiar with it, but um, Australia first defeated England um, on English soil in a, in a Test match um, in 1882 at the Oval. And it had been a really close finish. England only needed, I, th- I think... 85 to win the match, and, and they fell about nine runs short. For some reason, um, C.T. Studd, who was the coming young cricketer in England, had been um, held back by the captain, Monkey Hornby, uh, didn't come in until number 10, hardly faced a ball, was not, not out. This is the first man after W.G. Grace to score a 1,000 runs and take 100 wickets in an English season, and he did it that year and again the following year. Why he came in number 10? Who knows? Anyway... England fell to a, a fabulous spell of bowling from, from Fred Spofforth, and the Australians were cheered all the way back to their hotel on the Strand. Um, and this was seen as being a bit of a shock to the system, even though, as I mentioned earlier, the Australians had beaten an extremely strong MCC side that might well have been called an England side four years earlier um, at Lords in a single day. It, it shouldn't really have been that much of a shock to the system. Perhaps it was just the media... Um, bigging up the story of, of English failure, as they quite often like to do to this very day. Anyway, a few days later, there was a, a spoof obituary in the Sporting Times, um, placed by a journalist called Reginald Shirley Brooks. It declared the death of English cricket at the Oval on that day, um, and the fact that the body would be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. So this had two elements to it. It was firstly a joke about English cricket having died at the hands of the Australian team, but also cremation was not yet legal in the United mm-hmm. Kingdom. And there was a big debate to legalise it, which Reginald Shirley Brooks's father was a leading member of, uh, the, the campaign group. Um, of course, this is a time when, during the, the Industrial Revolution, the Victorian cities of England had expanded massively and a lot of the graveyards were becoming overcrowded. So there was a, an impetus behind the idea of finding another way of disposing of dead bodies, which this campaign was feeding into. Anyway, from a cricketing point of view, the, the joke was what uh, caught off. And the the captain of the next England team to go out to Australia that very winter, the Honourable Ivo Bly, said his team would be going out to defend the Ashes. And the captain of the Australian team, Billy Murdoch, said his team, I'm sorry, Bly would de- regain the Ashes. Billy Murdoch's team would fight to defend the Ashes for Australia. So the stage was set for the first Ashes series. But before the three scheduled tests even took place, the England team stayed at um, Rupert's Wood House, Sunbury, Victoria, yep. a little way outside Melbourne, 
home of um, Sir William Clark, Australia's first baronet, and his wife, Lady Janet. And while there, they played a scratch match against a team of estate workers on Christmas Eve, which they won. Lady Janet um, thought that by doing this, Ivo had regained the honour of English cricket and should therefore be rewarded with the ashes. So he, she took a little, what we think is probably a, used as a perfume bottle or an ointment jar. She may have picked it up in an antiquities stall somewhere in Greece or Italy. The, the Clark family had been in Europe the year before. Um, a bale was burnt from uh, the, the, the wicket that was used in the match. And again, this, this, this is not something we have absolute definite proof on. We think this is the likeliest story of the many competing theories. Um, and it, and this, the ashes of this bale in the urn were presented to Ivo Bly uh, as the ashes of English cricket. Now, the joke was still current, and there were probably many different um, presentations of a similar nature that took place over the course of that tour. But the reason this one meant so much to Ivo was because one of the ladies present was a young woman called Florence Rose Morphy, who was the, um, the Clark family governess and music teacher. And he had fallen in love with her. And a couple of years later, they, they would get married and she would eventually become the Countess of Darnley and a, a great friend of Queen Mary. So Ivo kept this particular souvenir when he probably disposed of many others because it, it reminded him of the period when um, he'd fallen in love with his future wife and it became a treasured family memento. And it was only, you know, after, after that period for, for 20 years, apart from a, an Australian journalist called Clarence Moody, there, there were very, very few people talking about the ashes. I, I don't think there's a single mention of it in the English press from 1883 until about 1903 when Helen Warner wrote a book called How We Recovered the Ashes. Uh, and when, sorry, 1904, because the, the tour ended in 04. And when his team had gone out to Australia in, in 1903, on the same boat had been Countess Darnley, the former Florence Rose Morphy. So he probably picked up the story from her. And, and this book really reignited the, the legend of the ashes. And over the course of the next couple of decades, until Ivo sadly passed away in 1927, the, the idea of the ashes as being the representation of, of the, the rivalry on the cricket field between England and Australia grew and grew and grew to the point where he began to appreciate that this little object on his, his mantelpiece in his study had a significance way beyond his own family hmm. and actually told the story of the origin of that rivalry better than any other object. Yeah. And that was why at the end of his life, it wasn't in his will, but he, he told his, his wife before he died, this should really go to Lords. And she honoured his final wish and donated it to to, to MCC after his death. And the relationship between Ivo and Florence, I think, is is why I always say that it's hard. The, the, the story of the Ashes Inn is a love story. And it's a love story between an English aristocrat and an ordinary middle-class Australian girl who never could have imagined she'd, she'd become a countess and be a close confidant of the Queen of England um, in all her imagination. What, what a story. So at its heart, it's, it's something that really shows the deep and enduring connection between England and Australia. It's, it's something that should bring us together rather than dividing us in anger. Yeah, and yeah absolutely. And um, actually behind me here, I do actually have a replica of the urn. Uh, Excellent. Here we go. Here we go. Not quite the original urn, but sort of get, you get the idea. Yeah, but that's it's the, not badly yeah. done. I, I should stress that whenever, whenever you see the end of a series and mm. a, a captain of England or Australia is holding up 
what looks like the ashes urn. It's not the real thing. No, nope, don't worry. We never players anywhere near that. Even I don't yeah. like picking it up when sometimes I have to. Yes, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, yeah, you usually see uh, teams uh, when they win the ashes, of course, mm. lift this replica urn, um, which is close to the real thing. Uh, but no, I like looking at it. It's probably the only thing I'm going to get close to an actual scene of the actual urn, of course. Um, but if I go to Lords one day, I'll I'll definitely. It's, um, it's always on display. We, you know, we sent it to Australia a couple of times for exhibition. Yes, I was about to mention that. Um, 2006-7, it went out for that tour you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and also 2019-20, uh, went out to Victoria for a couple of months for the That's Velvet. That's right, to the, the State of Victoria, which, which was a, a fantastic opportunity for us to show it in a non-cricketing context yeah. um, because it was about the social history of the State of Victoria. And it was, yeah. it was displayed next to um, a suit of armour worn by Ned Kelly. And the reason for that was um, one of Lady Janet Clark's um, relatives had been a uh, one of the, the police officials involved in the final shootout. And the suit of armour had been presented to the Clark family. And it's likely, therefore, that when Ivo and the amateurs from his England team arrived at Rupert's Woodhouse, this suit of armour was actually on display somewhere in the house. So there's a, there's a nice connection between those two artefacts, which helped, helped to tell a unifying story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but then in 1990s, in the 1990s, Neil, MCC commissioned um, an urn-shaped Waterford crystal trophy mm. after recognising both teams' desire to play for an actual trophy. Obviously, you can't present the Ashes urn. It's fragile. It's one of cricket's most prized artefacts. So they decided to do that. Mark Taylor was the first captain to be presented with that in mm -hmm. the Ashes series in 98-99 in Australia which turned out to be Mark Taylor's last series as a player because he announced his retirement from that series. And Australia won another, another Ashes series as always. So, Neil, tell us about, about the Waterford Crystal Ashes urn. Um, tell us a bit more about that mm -hmm. and why was that introduced as the uh, trophy that the teams play for mm -hmm. now? I, I think there was, there was a growing expectation in cricket at the time that um, if, if you win a tournament or a series, you ought to be presented with something that you can yeah. take back with you. Um, and obviously, there was it, it couldn't be the urn, even though there was this sort of groundswell of popular opinion in Australia that we keep winning the Ashes. Why, why can't we take the Ashes home? Why do the Ashes have to stay in, in London when we've just won yeah. them? Well, you know, the urn's never been a trophy. That, that wasn't its original no. purpose. Um, and it certainly couldn't fulfil that, that function now. It would, um, it would not survive the frequent travels, as we know yeah. from, from the examinations we've done of it. So the only answer to this question was actually to create something entirely new that, that could serve as a permanent trophy for the for the Ashes series. Um, and it was it was nice that we were able to, to do something that still acknowledged the, the shape and image of the urn, um, but was actually more substantial and you know, had some heft to it. It's just it's ironic, of course, after all that effort and the fact that we presented that, that whenever you see the presentation ceremony at, at the end of yep. the series, end of the final test. Yeah, the the Waterford Crystal Trophy, the official trophy, is somewhere on the podium, but it's probably at someone's feet. And the, the captain yep. and all the team are holding this tiny yep. little yep. well, yep. You can't get away from the perception no, that you, you, can't. Are, you are fighting for this minuscule little relic that, that has mm. somehow, over the course of a, a century or more, acquired such significance in, in the, the two countries that, that battle over its image. 
Um, but there we are. We do have a we do have a, a, a trophy for it now, which um, for some reason I won't go into is currently in Australia, although we're hoping to see it in England again this summer at some point. Well, we're, let's hope um, Australia can get it back um, again and, and win the series in England this time. But um, uh, that makes perfect sense. That was my next question. Where's the uh, trophy now? Is it over in England or is it still Cricket Australia? Well, as you said, it's still Cricket Australia. So mm-hmm. um, they'll be reluctant to hand it over for the start of the series at the end it, of the year. But it will it come over this year. Be... Sorry? It will come over this year because it will yep. obviously have to be presented to, to whichever team wins it at the end of the series. Yep. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to, to display it in the MCC Museum during the course of the series. It will probably be, I forget where the first test is being held, but it will probably be there for, for the, the, the very initial fanfare. And then yeah. we'll have to go off to, I think it's the Oval, the final test will have to be there for the final presentation. But in between, it'd be nice to think that we can display it at Lords for, for people to come and see it again, because it's always, yeah. it's, a, it's a great draw. Um, and just to see it, we usually have, we've got a trophy cabinet upstairs where we keep a replica yeah. room. Because yes. um, yeah, the original trophy is not the original urn is not a trophy, um, so we yes. keep the replica in in the trophy cabinet because that does get presented. But to put the um, the the actual official trophy, the Waterford Crystal Trophy, next to it, you get a real sense of the difference in scale. Mm. It's um, it's like showing you know Joel Garner next to Sachin Tendulkar. Yeah, yeah, two different sizes, but it is yeah. a striking trophy. Um, and I think the Australian team, when they won the Ashes in the last series in Australia, I think they put it put some beer into the uh, into the urn afterwards and tr- drank out of it, which is probably not yeah. frowned upon um, in terms of trying to keep it in tip top condition. But that's what they did when they celebrated. Yeah, there, there have been a few accidents to replicas over the years, but actually mm. one, of, one of my favourite dressing room stories doesn't involve a replica. It was. Um, the, the end of the 2001 series. So we've already got the trophy in, in place by now and Australia have just yeah. won the series again, but all the same um, in in the Australian dressing room at the Oval at the end of that match, the, there's a feeling, okay, we've got the trophy, but there's still, there are no ashes. Why don't we have yeah. any ashes? So Ricky Ponting and Colin Miller took a bale from the match and tried to burn it with kerosene, <laughs> which didn't work very well. It just ended up rather blackened and charred. So they didn't put it yeah. in the trophy as ashes. Colin Miller took them home and actually created a rather handsome modernist um, urn f- for these two blackened bales mm. um, out of out of Huon wooden pine, I think, local local Australian woods, and placed the the two blackened bales inside for safe safekeeping. So and we actually acquired those a few years later at auction. So they're on display at Lords now as the Ponting Miller Ashes, just a, <laughs> one of those. Funny little stories of, of cricketers creating their own artifacts when yeah, that's right. Um, oh, that leads on to another. You just reminded me about that. Uh, we're mainly talking about the men's ashes, but touch on the women's ashes, of course. Yeah, and it was at Lords. Funny story about how they created the women's ashes, they used a wok from the kitchen. Yep, they had to borrow a wok from the kitchen, um, and some lighter fluid. They, they they burned, I think it was a, a ball and the the constitution and rules of the Women's Cricket Association, which which that year had just been merged into the New England and Wales Cricket Board. So women's cricket and men's cricket had a unified governing body in England for the first time. So that was kind of a, a landmark moment. And the women had an Ashes trophy to compete for for the first time. Um, and that's that's on display at Lords at the moment. Um, obviously, that's up for grabs as well. This, this yes, summer. 
Absolutely. And the Australian women's team just won another T20 World mm. Cup in South Africa. And unfortunately for England, got uh, kicked out by the um, the home side in South Africa, who deserve their place in the final, hosting the T20 World Cup. And um, it should be another great Ashes series later on it, it, this, should be. this year. It should be. Um, it's, it's always fascinating when you see both the men's and women's series going on at the same time. And I, I mm. think in previous years when this has happened, there's, there's, there's been a, a definite um, difference in the exposure level. I yeah. think we're going to see that being a lot closer this year because women's mm -hmm. cricket, so certainly in, in this country since the 2017 World Cup, which England won, and that was actually one of the best games I've seen, uh, yeah. best games of cricket at, in, of any format, either gender, at Lords in, in my time here. Um, the women's game has really take, taken off. Um, and, and actually the interest in it, we could see that even watching people go around the women's cricket exhibition in the museum over the last couple yeah. of years, it, people learning the stories about women's cricket and taking a genuine interest in the history of the game and how quickly it's developed in recent years and who some of the pioneering players have been. That's been really indicative of, of the momentum that's now behind the women's game, which is really encouraging because, you know, if, if you want the, this game of ours to thrive in the future, why rely on only one half of the human race? Let's get both involved. Yeah, ab absolutely. And the women's Premier League in, in India is going to be exciting next month. Um, many of the women cricketers have been paid large sums of money and rightly deserved. They deserve every every um, amount they, they get paid for. Uh, wonderful, talented cricketers. And no doubt yeah. it's going to be a wonderful women's ashes as well as men's ashes. I'm sure. It and um, what a lot of people may not know is that Australia and England, the first women's test was in the 30s and it was played in Brisbane, which England England won. Yeah. Um, in fact, obviously that wasn't contested for the Ashes, of course. It was just a test match between two countries. But mm -hmm. um, hopefully we see a lot more women's test matches in years to come. Um, there's less and less at the moment, but, you know, there's still plenty of work to do there. But it's always good to see a... Even the last Ashes in Australia, the women's, uh, that test match in Canberra was unbelievable. It went down to the wire and it was a draw, draw in the end. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, hopefully the, the, the test in, in England will be the same as well. Um, I believe that's going to be five days. It's not going to be four. So that's going to be a great sight to see. And, and hopefully um, we see a good test match and a good series. Um, I'm sure we will. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And... You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we have a bit of banter and about that, about the ashes, but it does bring people together from all parts of the world. You get a lot of people that go over to, a, to, to England from Australia to watch. Same with the Barmy Army or England supporters that come over here to Australia. Um, it's, it's a perfect way of um, bringing people together in this great game of cricket that we love. We've, we've got a lovely document in, in the MCC archive, which is, was given out as, as advice to players going on overseas MC, MCC tours in the 1950s. And, and this particular mm. document relates to a tour of Australia. It may even have been the Hutton tour of 54, 55. But at one point it says, hospitality is Australia's greatest weapon. In other words, you know, don't, don't eat too much, don't drink too much, because you'll certainly yeah. get the opportunity. And I, yeah. I think that indicates how England teams have always been received in Australia. Mm. And hopefully Australian teams have been received in England too. Okay, yes, there's, there's been that surface level of, ah, you're going to get beaten 5-0. But yeah. underneath all of that, there is the sense of a family reunion, of, yeah. of two countries with a shared history and a shared love of this game coming together to celebrate that every couple of years. 
Um, I, I think it's it's a great tradition. It's great to reflect on the, on the fact that we've we've had this really close close relationship driven by the ashes for for well over a century now, and long may it continue. Yes, um, yeah, well over 140 years old, and it continues to get better and better years year on year. Um, the question I have for you, Neil, is the preservation of the urn, of course. Um, so how do you go about preserving the urn? What's the process with that? And have you ever done some investigation with x-rays or et cetera to see what's actually inside the urn, or you want to keep that as a, as a mystery? Um, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that. In, in terms of preserving the artifact, I, I think the, the key is to keep it stable and move it and handle it as little as possible, yeah. make sure it's kept out of direct natural light because it's, it's got this little poem from Melbourne Punch pasted to the front and that's quite faded now and it, it is sadly it will continue to fade there's nothing you can do unless you keep it completely out of the light in which case no one can see it yeah um, but basically it, it's a sort of minimal handling regime to, to keep it in its current state we have analyzed it in the past the reason for that was not so much to find out what's inside it but actually before when it went on its extensive exhibition tour in 2006, 2007, it had originally been intended that we'd send it out four years earlier for the 0203 tour. Yeah. We had to, when we agreed to that, we had to um, have a conservation assessment carried out. And part of that involved um, an X-ray. And when it was X-rayed, it revealed, yes, that there is a certain deposit in the bottom consistent with ashes of, of something or other. Um, but it also revealed a lot of minute cracks in in the, yeah. the actual body of the urn um, and in, in the stem of it, which indicated that there had been some previous damage that had been repaired. Um, and those, those repairs were becoming un unstable. Now, you may know there's a story that um, when the urn was at Cobham Hall, the home of uh, Lady, Lord and Lady Darnley, at some point an overzealous maid dusted it off the mantelpiece, it broke, and whatever was put back in the um, in the urn after it was repaired might well have been ashes from the the fireplace rather than ashes from the bale mm. at, at Rupert's Wood House. Yeah, I suppose you could say that that's consistent. That the evidence we found is consistent with that legend, so it, it may may even be true. Um, we could have we could have taken the uh, the additional step of removing the cork, um, taking a sample of the contents and having them analysed. There were, yep. there were two issues with this. One, the cork's actually fixed in with an adhesive, so we're not sure whether we'd be able to replace it if we did take it out. And the other is, we like the mystery. Um, it's, it's great being able to, to know that there's something in there and have all these stories yeah. about what it might be. If yep. we were able to establish it once and for all, all of that debate would die down. A, a lot of the mystique around it as an object would would disappear and i i kind of like the fact that i can come on podcasts like this and, and talk about it in in slightly hedged manner I, you know, I don't know for sure what's in it and i, I mm. quite like not knowing for sure yes um i think everyone's the same as well just that mystery behind it or mm. was it actually both bales or the stumps or the ball from that match mm. um yeah um yeah quite interesting i was just about to mention that the poem on the front of the urn now, where did that originate from? Why was that stuck on the Ashes Urn, that poem from the Melbourne Punch magazine? Well, that, assuming we're correct, that the urn itself was first presented in um, 
at Rupertswood House on Christmas Eve. And that was, of course, before the, the three match, three test matches that were originally scheduled. Yep. Now, after those three matches, um, England won 2-1. There was subsequently a fourth match, which Australia won. So you can yep. argue about whether Australia should have kept the, the Ashes anyway. But um, this poem appeared in, in Melbourne Punch, I think, in February 1883, after the third test match. And it, it talked about when Ivo goes back with the urn, the urn. So the, the, the England team were, were back and forth to Rupertswood. Um, they, they stayed there two or three occasions over the course of the tour, whenever they were in the, the area. And at some point, uh, we're not sure who, we're not sure when, but it must have been after the third test, somebody cut this little poem out of an issue of Melbourne Punch and, and had it pasted onto the front of the urn. So there may have been a secondary presentation of it, after the test series where it, it kind of took on a more formal idea of, of, of being the ashes rather than just a joke. Um, but interestingly, Ivo himself never really associated the two. He, he made a speech um, at the farewell dinner at, at the MCG just before the team sailed back to England, where he said he thought the joke had gone on long enough and the ashes should be quietly buried in a corner of the MCG and forgotten about. Well, he didn't mean the urn. He meant the legend of the ashes, which to him wasn't directly associated with the urn. The urn was something different associated with yep. him and Florence. Yeah. So, yeah, that's there are all sorts of um, mysteries about the the presentation and representation of the urn and what might be in it. Um, well, we'll probably never get to the the bottom of it all, and that's probably a good thing in my view. Yeah, uh, keep that mystery. And uh, that that legend behind it, um, yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating listening to you um, talk about that. I've learned so much from just listening to you about about the urn itself. Um, what is it actually made out of? Is it terracotta that we know of? The, the yeah, it's a kind of, it's a kind of terracotta pottery. Um, if if you look at the the replicas, which are made out of a kind of resin, yeah, they're they're a little heavier than the original. Um, because they're solid, they don't they don't have any sort of anything inside. It's just a solid resin, and they're also a more distinct brown color. So they're a slight brown color. Um, yeah. I'm talking about the official replicas here, rather than the ones that you can actually yeah. buy in shops, um, which are, are plastic of some kind. Yeah. Now, if you look at the original urn, you'll see it has a kind of reddish luster that comes from the the, the original terracotta pottery that no yeah. replica we've ever made has has ever been able to replicate. Yep. Um, it's it probably wasn't a very you know, high quality object when it was first created. It was probably mass produced. Um, as I mentioned, we know the Clark family in, in the years leading up to um, the, the famous events at Rupertswood had traveled in Europe. They'd visited sites of you know, antiquity in, in Italy and Greece. And there were probably souvenir stalls set up at this where they were selling little miniature amphorae and, and urns. As, as souvenirs of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So it was probably one of those originally, and there may well have been hundreds of similar objects, um, possibly without the little handles, which we think are not original. Yeah. Although they are in a very similar material. Um, but it, it, no, whoever made it would never imagined, I'm sure, that, 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 that this little item would go on to have such a history and such mm. a, an individual story behind it when it was just a mass-produced souvenir. My former colleague, Glennis Williams, who sadly died a year or so ago, um, was for many years the, the foremost authority uh, on the Ashes Urn, and she was hoping 
before she died to to, to kind of produce the, the a fully researched backstory for the urn, but sadly she never had the opportunity to do that. Um, maybe, maybe somebody else can can research that and uh, and yeah. find out where it originally came from and what it might have been used for before it acquired the history we know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, Neil, there's there's been so many great ashes moments at Lords over its long history over two hundred years, as we said earlier. Um, just to name a few, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Don Bradman's 254 in 1930, which was his first tour to England. Uh, Bob Massey, who took 16 wickets on debut in 1972. Mm. Keith Miller, the great all-rounder from Australia, who was a fighter pilot in World War II, mm -hmm. took 10 wickets in his last test at Lords in 1956. Battle of the Ridge, test match in 1961, Bill Laurie scoring 130 against Statham and Truman. <coughs> Glenn McGrath's 8 for 38 in 1997 and his 500 wickets in 2005. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Flintoff's 5 for 92 in 2009, which was his last test at Lords. And um, he announced his retirement from test cricket. So, so there's so many Ashes moments in mm -hmm. test matches at Lords, Neil. What can you tell us about some of those moments? And I, we'll, we'll get to Bradman's 254. We'll keep that separate. So the other moments I just listed there, what can you tell us about those great moments I listed um, in that short list? Well, I mean, Keith Miller was one of those Australian cricketers who immediately felt at home at Lords as soon as he came here. He was he was great friends with Dennis Compton and Bill Edrich. Um, of course, he, he, he played at Lords for the first time um, during the wartime matches in 1945, the famous victory tests, although his his best, um, his his really great innings that summer of one eight one hundred and eighty five was um, was played for the Dominions against England. It wasn't in one of the, the victory tests, and that was I think Pelham Warner said that was one of the greatest innings he'd ever seen at Lords. Um, but I, I don't think he'd had a lot of success with the ball before fifty six. So, so to come back and actually take ten wins mm. match was, and and he was you know he he'd been a fast bowler for a long time. I guess he was at the sort of Jimmy Anderson stage of his career yeah. then where he probably wasn't as rapid as he'd been in 48 or even in 45. Um, but he was a wily old cricketer and he still knew how to manipulate the ball and he knew how to take wickets. Yeah. And and it would have been great for him to, to make that achievement. I mean, you, you look at some of the players who've never made it onto the honours boards, the likes of Brian Lara, Sachin Tendulkar, mm. Kumar Sangakara, I think they did it at the seventh attempt. Um, yeah. Ricky so, Ponning never... Scored a century at Lords. Ricky Ponting never scored a century at oh. Lords. I mean, it's astonishing to think how and Shane Warne. Shane Warne never, yep, never, never took a five. Took yeah. five for at Lords. How many people have not achieved that? So when you've 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 had a go and you've had another go and another go and then finally you do it, it it's it, admittedly there there were no honours boards at the time, but I'm sure it yep. was still it was still a, felt to be a great achievement to score a century or take five wickets in an innings at Lords. Ten wickets in a match is is doubly good, of course. So and Keith, of course, was one of the great glamour boys of cricket in that immediate mm. post-war era he was he was such a popular popular figure with with english and australian cricket fans alike um and you know it we, we've got a portrait of him in the pavilion um it's it's just it's a shame from my point of view that it was painted when he was a very old man so you don't really yeah. get the sense of that vigor and that glamour yeah. that surrounded him um in in his youth he was yeah he was a, he was a good looking fella as well when he was mm. Um, so you can understand why a, a lot of the, the ladies of England swooned over him when he was on tour over here. So that, that was a that was a, a tremendous um, feat by by one of the, the most exciting cricketers ever to have 
set foot at Lords. Um, the, the Battle of the Ridge, I mean, I don't recall the details of the match so much in 1961, but the Ridge was one of those. I remember when I was started watching cricket seriously in the 1980s, people were still talking about the Ridge, even though everybody at Lords would say, no, no, we got rid of that years ago. It, it doesn't mm. exist anymore, but it was still sort of embedded as a legend. Yeah. Um, and and it was certainly true that if um, if you were bowling from the pavilion end in the 1960s, the uh, the ball would lift more um, or sometimes shoot more. There was a bit of uneven bounce, but the, the pitch was relayed and all the analysis that was done on that afterwards suggested that it had, it had remedied the situation. But nevertheless, the ridge continued to be a, a legend, you know, right up to probably the end of the 20th century. Um, I remember the, uh, the well, just... I'll come back to Bob Massey in a minute, but I remember the Glenn McGrath effort in um, in ninety ninety seven, wasn't it? Because yes. we'd um, unusually, yeah, you know, we at that point England went into every series with a sort of sense of imminent doom, and yet at Edgbaston just before that, we'd yeah, you know, Nasser Hussain and Graham Thorpe had put on a tremendous partnership, and England had actually won. And Mark Taylor had been in very poor form at the start yeah. of that tour and, and, and there were you know, rumours that it wasn't a very happy camp. And suddenly England had won the first test, having also done well in the one-day internationals beforehand. And we went to Lords with a huge degree of optimism. And then suddenly Glenn McGrath comes along and we all know what Glenn McGrath could do. It was mm. impossible to score a runoff and he was yeah. just nipping it both ways off the seam. And all of a sudden it's business as usual. Um, and in a way that kind of, that same feeling emerged in, in 2005 at the start of that great series when Lords was actually the first test match. Uh, and again, we went into that with a lot of optimism and Australia batted first and we, uh, England bowled them out pretty cheaply with Steve Harmison bowling fast and cutting Ricky Ponting's cheek yeah. with a bouncer and suddenly thought, yeah, we're in this one. We're going to compete. And then Glenn McGrath comes on and pulls yeah. and suddenly it's a heavy defeat for, for England. Mm. And we have to, we have, luckily England that time managed to, to recover. But that, that, um, that moment of, of that test match in, in um, 1997 was just, it was such a deflating moment for English cricket and such an invigorating one for Australia where they realised, yeah, we're still on top here. We're, yeah. we're not going to lose this series. We're going to just steam through to the end. And it was largely thanks to Glenn McGrath's brilliant spell that that momentum was, was re-achieved. Bob Massey, 1972, only one of, the, one of the most interesting characters in cricket that, you know, if you, if you compare his, his career, his feat to someone like Hedley Verity. Now, Verity was a great bowler for a number of years and he, he took 15 wickets in a test match against Australia. Um, and then he continued bowling well through the 1930s um, and sadly was, was killed in the Second World War, very tragically, in 1943 in Italy. Bob Massey kind of burst on the scene out of nowhere. The conditions in that match suited him, you know, atmospherically, pitch-wise, perfectly suited for his bowling. And it must have been one of those days when everything just went right. And, and he, he was talented enough and, and savvy enough to know how to use those conditions to his advantage. And yet... It was, it, it was like a sudden brilliant supernova that, that mm. disappeared just as quickly. And he, I know he had a tour to the West Indies the following winter that didn't yeah. go nearly as well in not so helpful conditions. And he, he faded from the game very quickly 
after that. So, but thank God he's got that one great match mm. to show how good he was. Um, you know, not not every cricketer's lucky enough to play Test cricket, and not every cricketer's lucky enough, even if even if you've got the talent, not all, everyone's lucky yeah. enough to make a success of it. There are plenty of players who haven't made the most of themselves at Test level, but when you've when you've taken 16 wickets in a test match at Lords against yeah. the old enemy, no one's going to say you weren't good enough. No. And he'll always have that to his credit. So well done, Bob Massey. Um, I mean, my, the, the last one he mentioned, Flintoff's um, mm. feet in, in his last test match at Lords. That's, that has to be a personal favorite of mine because I was there. Um, yeah. And it was the, the last day of a, of a thrilling match. We beat Australia for the first time in 75 years. Um, my job at the time involved looking after people in the library on a match day. So I, I didn't get out to see much cricket, but naturally if I had the opportunity, I would love to go. Uh, I'd love to, to go and just see a few overs. Um, and the library was pretty much empty, but there was one journalist naming no names who was in there writing. You know, Australian wickets were falling. We were getting closer and closer to the end. And he was still in there on his laptop. And I'm thinking, what's going on? What, what are you doing? Why aren't mm. you out there watching the game? Surely yeah. that's why you're here. I didn't say this to him, obviously, but that was what was going yeah. through my head. And behind that was, am I going to have a chance to see any of this? Because this is looking mm. like a historic moment that I, I, I might not see again. Yep. Eventually, our department secretary, Sally, um, wandered through and said, I know you want to go out and have a look. Don't worry. I'll look after the, the library for, for a little while. You go out and watch a few overs. So I, I went out. I snuck into the pavilion. I had to edge along the back wall of the long room where I couldn't see a thing. It was so crowded. I went up the, the, the staircase by the home dress room. And eventually, I, the only place I could find a view of the pitch was on the roof terrace. And I just got up there in time to see the last two wickets fall and England claim the victory. And then I would plenty of other members, I walked back down from the roof terrace and I was actually standing on the landing outside the England dressing room as the England team came back up the steps. Broad grins on their faces um, to, to walk into the dressing room. And, you know, when you work at Lords, you, you don't always get to see a, as much cricket as people might imagine. Um, and that really wasn't very much cricket to watch, but it was such yeah. a historic moment. And, and just yeah. to see the England team close up in their moment of triumph, that's a day I'm never going to forget. Uh, uh, yeah, really, really, it brings home how privileged I am to have the job I have. Absolutely. And I, I think it was Stephen Fry who did one of those reaction videos on you, Lord's YouTube channel, and he was reacting to Freddie's um, five wickets, and he had tears in his eyes because hmm. um, it means so much, obviously. And um, it was quite a significant moment in his career. Last test match at Lord's, he's going to retire at the end of the series. England because Australia had a pretty good record at Lords for so many years. They never lost a test since. Yeah, I, I remember I did, um, 1934 was the last time. Yeah. I, I, did a, um, I did an interview with, um, with a journalist from the BBC a few days before that match where we were talking about the history and, and she was asking whether there was some sort of hoodoo or jinx um, on the England team playing Australia at Lords. And luckily, of course, that story didn't last beyond the next five days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a, in a way, for Flintoff himself, there was a redemptive element to it too, because um, after the great triumph in two thousand and five, there'd been that tour in two thousand six seven to Australia, yes. which Flintoff had captained, and we'd got beaten five nil. 
which you know wasn't a great way to follow up the triumph of, of 2005. So for him, he was coming back and showing the Australians that he, he and and his English fans that he could still compete at the top level and he was still a winner. And to end his career on that high note rather than the lower note of the Australia tour, I, I think was a great bonus for him and for all of the, all of us who were watching from an England point of view as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one about Bob Massey, just to touch on that, I think Ian Chappell, I heard him say, he was talking about that match and he said, oh, Massey got 16 wickets. So the, so the game was over in like three or four days or three days or something like that. And the Queen was due to meet the players. And they changed it from Lords to Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. And you know how Australians are like when they win. Ian Chappell back in those days, drink, you know, mm -hmm. drinking a, a lot. Dennis Lilly wasn't a big drinker back in those days, but they said, oh, Keith, you know, one of his heroes was Ray Linwall, and, and I think Ian Chappell said, oh, Lindy used to have a drink after a game, and, you know, Dennis Lilly was big on Ray Linwall, and he said, okay, if Ray Linwall did that, one of my heroes, I'll have a drink. Mm -hmm. He just sculled this big jug of beer, and the manager came in and said, guys, we got to go to Buckingham Palace. We can't have any of the players turning up under the weather because you've got to meet the Duke and the Queen. And uh, they went to Buckingham Palace and Ian Chappell was introducing the, the team to Her Majesty and came to Dennis Lilly. <laughs> Ian Chappell said, Your Majesty, Dennis Lilly. And Dennis Lilly said, G'day. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, that's, um, <clears throat> yeah. Just hearing that, I just laughed. And another Ashes moment was the centenary test, which didn't count for the Ashes, obviously. Commemoration mm -hmm. of Test Cricket 100 years, England and Australia at the MCG. And, the Queen was there as well, meeting the players, and Dennis Lilly asked for her autograph. And I think Her Majesty said kindly, I don't do that. And I think she sent Dennis Lilly a signed letter with her signature there, Her Majesty. Um, great, great sense of humour there, but what a test match yeah. that was, the centenary test. And 1977, oh, yeah. unfortunately, got every living cricketer that was alive at the time from Australia and England there. Um, and, you know, the matches remembered for Derek Randall's 100 and Lily taking wickets and Rod Marsh, late, right, the late great Rod Marsh, um, scoring the first century by an Australian keeper in tests. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Rick McCosker got his jaw broken by Bob Willis. And, you know, Kerry O'Keefe, who was a leg spinner, had to open the batting with um, the other opening partner there. Um, it was just an incredible test match, went down the wire, and it was the same margin as it was 100 years ago, uh, mm. 45 runs. <laughs> kind of spooky, but one of the best. It is. It, it's a spooky coincidence. Mm. But a, a, lo a lovely nod to the history It was that that match was commemorating. It's a pity our own centenary test match at, at Lords in 1980, which commemorated the first test in England, which was at mm. the Oval. We had the centenary test at Lords, but the first match was at the Oval. Um, that was slightly ruined by rain, but um, people still got to see a great innings from Kim Hughes, who very nearly hit the ball over the pavilion. Uh, I think he, I think he made a, a very dashing eighty. There was some great cricket in the, in that match, but unfortunately, the the weather got the better of it. But um, yeah, what a what a great period of cricket history with with so many characters and great players around. Uh, absolutely. Um, let's talk about Don Bradman's two fifty four mm. in nineteen thirty. That's probably arguably one of the best settings to be played at Lords. Um, it was the highest score by an overseas player at Lords until Graham Smith got his 259 against um, England, 2003. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, Bradman said that his that innings was one of his best in Test cricket. He said in his autobiography, and I quote, practically 
without exception, every ball went where it was intended. And, um, you know, in that series, he scored 974 runs with four centuries, an average of 139.14. 974 runs, which is the most for any test series in the history of the game. No one will ever surpass that. I think I think Wally Hammond came close to it on a tour to Australia. He got 800 runs or something like that. Mm-hmm. A very fine player himself, Wally Hammond, um, for England. And um, he scored 334 in that series at Headingley. He scored 300 of those runs in a day, which is the only time a batter's done that in test cricket. So, Neil, why is that considered one of the great innings of Lords um, that Lords has ever seen in terms of Ashes contests? And what was Don Bradman's relationship with Lords as a player and also after he retired? I, th- I think in terms of, of that particular innings, um, you, you've mentioned the fact that Bradman himself rated it as probably the best he played. Um and given how many great innings he did play, that then in itself has to be some recommendation. Um, it, it was the first time he played at Lords, you know, the, the, the home of cricket. We didn't use that phrase then, but the, head, the headquarters of the game, everybody knew it was the most famous, the most prestigious ground in the world of cricket. And for him to, to perform like that in his first test match appearance on that ground is really quite astonishing. And it, it was you know, by all accounts, something near perfection as an innings. Um, it's it's hard to imagine um, now what, what a game changer Don Bradman was in, in terms of you know, batting in, in that era. And obviously, at the end of that summer, England started to think about how they could cope with Bradman on the forthcoming tour of Australia in 32-33. And we all, mm. we all know what the result was, the, the body line tactic. Yeah. Um, so that there was there was something very very different about Don Bradman and and that innings even though he'd made more runs at Headingley the the fact that it was just so perfect there were no errors in it um, that that can only have added to the impression that that Bradman was something akin to a run making machine there was something inhuman about him which I, I think I think was a lot of the impression that. Um, that English cricket came out of that summer with that the that it it just wasn't it just shouldn't be possible for a batsman to yeah. be so invulnerable to make runs so easily without seeming to take any risks. Um, and it's you know you, you read the the accounts of the time from people like Neville Cardus and it is um, it is remarkable to think the impression that he made on on the game of cricket changed the game of cricket in one short summer. And obviously his career went on like that, even though he, he averaged only just over 50 in the Bodyline series. That was a that was a blip. Um, overall, his career, he was averaging about 100, just dipped below it slightly at the end. And obviously he became one of, I guess, one of Australia's first national heroes in any context. Yeah. I mean, he his emergence as a national hero was, was probably... It happened at the same time that there was a growing sense of, of national identity in Australia, that the country was more than just a British dominion on the other side of the world, that it had its own, it had its own identity, its own culture, its own, it was building its own history. And Bradman was part of that. He gave Australians something to be really proud of because he was unarguably the best in the world. Yeah. And he was an Aussie, an ordinary Aussie guy, you know, not from any yeah. special family or anything. He was just an ordinary yeah. Aussie guy. Um, so he became one of the most important people in Australia on the back of that and over the course of his career. And 
he was in many respects um, the voice of Australian cricket and the, the people that he was the man that, that MCC often turned to to know the voice of Australian cricket on, on issues like you know, throwing in the late 1950s on the LBW law. And because he can, he, even though you know he, he had a, a separate career as a stockbroker, he never lost his connection with the game. He continued to be involved in its administration. You know, he, he did a stint as a journalist and famously sat in the same um, press box as Douglas Jardine at yeah. one point, not long before Jardine's death. I gather they didn't speak to each other, which doesn't surprise me. Um, but he he was such a, a thoughtful man on, on the history of the game that he he continued to communicate with MCC with various of its of its officials and, and prominent people at Lords. Um, in in the same way that that MCC was trying to work for the good of the game and ensure that it evolved in the right way, Bradman had that same agenda as well. You know, he he had his opinions. He was very um I, I think in um the, the 50 58-59 tour, apart from the throwing issue, his his great issue with the cricket played in that series was um, he thought Peter May's captaincy for England was too negative. Um, and he wasn't, wasn't a great fan of that. So he, he was very keen on positive cricket. He, he'd always scored, he wasn't a great six hitter, but he'd always scored runs at a great pace because he scored off practically every ball, similarly to, to WG Grace in that, in that sense. So he, he was such a preeminent figure in Australian cricket that whatever he said was always going to be taken seriously. And in the same way that, you know, in a later generation, Sir Geoffrey Boycott became a, a figure of, you know, because he knew so much about the, the science of batting and, and how to play the game, Bradman's similar level of knowledge on that and his, his terrific record made him somebody whose opinion you could not ignore. Um, and, and his, his, his continued involvement with, with the game and its major issues only reinforced that. Yeah, absolutely. And he had a song written for him, Don Bradman. Ah, uh, Don Bradman is even good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a nice song. I've listened to it many times. It's quite a catchy tune um, because they idolised him. And I guess <laughs> he sort of uh, got sick of that at the end of his career. And when he retired, he, he was over that adulation because he lived it all his life. He just uh, wanted to live his life quietly and um, mm. still answer letters. He used to write to people and they used to send him stuff. He invited cricketers that went to Adelaide for the test match. Uh, he would invite them to his house for tea or um, some sort of uh, function. Um, you know, he invited Tandorker and Shane Warne to his 90th birthday party mm. at, um, at his house. Uh, just to have a photo opportunity and um, and that. So he was quite a remarkable person. He Don was. And well, the, the, the parallel with Tendulkar, you mentioned earlier that um, yeah. there was a suggestion, particularly from Lady Jessie Bradman, that, yes. that Tendulkar was a little bit similar in, in terms of how he batted to, to Don himself. I think th there is another parallel in, in the level of fame that those two cricketers enjoyed yeah. in their native countries. And it, it must have been very difficult to cope with that, um, you know, never, never be able to go anywhere unrecognised. Unlike Jim Laker, as you mentioned earlier, Don Bradman couldn't have sat in a in a in a pub enjoying a pint and a sandwich without being mobbed. 
mm. uh, either in Australia or in England. And I think Sachin Tendulkar enjoy, in, endured something similar yeah. um, in India because his his popularity was, was so great and his recognizability was was just so universal. So it's it's a it's a tremendously hard thing for the sportsmen to deal with when they reach that level of eminence that the fame that comes with it must must be very very difficult to cope with yeah absolutely um especially with bradman and um just the amount of letters he would got uh, get um on his last tour to england in 48 he got 600 letters i think a day mm. he had to try and answer them all um and he also was ill on that tour he was ill yeah. he was he had appendicitis um and lady jesse had to come over quickly to be at his side and he soon recovered and led the led the team um as captain and um you know in that series with the invincibles you know australia chased down 400 in one of the test matches i believe it was at headingley mm. they chased down 400 and something and mm. bradman got for oh, 100 and arthur morris got 100 as um as well in that partnership neil harvey debuted in that series oh first test in england for him he debuted in um in australia in that test match against india and adelaide before the team went out to uh, the series in England in 48. And uh, he was only 18, 19. He was only the, he was the young, <clears throat> young fella in the, in the team. And, you know, he, he was too shy to ask Don Bradman for batting advice. So him and Sam Loxton um, were good mates. And he asked Sammy Loxton to go over and ask the boss, you know, Don <laughs> about um, he, um, Neil Harvey's batting. So Sam Loxton always called Don Bradman George, which was his middle name. He said, George, a <laughs> little friend here, he's got a bit of a problem with his batting. Can you help him out? And then so Donald gave the advice to Sam Loxton, and Sam Loxton said to Neil Harvey, um, uh, keep the ball along the ground, he said. That's the best advice that he got from <laughs> Don Bradman, and it worked. He got a century in that mm. test match at um, Headingley, I believe. If my memory serves me correctly, so even even to his teammates, he was imposing as a figure, yeah. and even for Neil Harvey, the youngest member of the group, not to go and speak to him face to face was. Um, it was interesting listening to Neil Harvey, who is the last member of the Invincibles. He's well into his nineties. He's still going strong. Um, I've heard him do some interviews on podcasts with people talking about his career and especially talking about Bradman and the Invincibles. So Don Bradman had that sort of imposing figure to his teammates as well to to many people of the opposition and also world cricket which is unbelievable a truly remarkable person who lived a, a remarkable life and um probably the, the closest to him in this modern era is probably steve smith um averaging 60 plus he's probably mirroring bradman's feats mm -hmm. um obviously you can't be exactly like bradman but many of his records will not be broken like 974 runs in a series won't be broken uh, averaging 99.94 won't be broken. Um, you know, it's just it's hard to imagine. You can never say never, yeah, with certainty, but it, it is hard to imagine those records. Yeah, broken. it is. It's hard to imagine, even even though Sachin Tendulkar played more test matches than Bradman, of course, different era, of course. Bradman only played 50 test matches because the the war, obviously, and and there was um, um, a bit, a bit of um, you know, sort of encouragement to get cricket on after the war especially mm -hmm. in 46, the Ashes were contested and they wanted to get cricket started again. And Bradman thought, well, I, I don't really want to play, you know, I'm sort of towards my end. Mm -hmm. But okay, you know, for queen and country, well, king and country back in those days, uh, we might as well 
do what we need to do for the empire. So they did. Um, and uh, he did that. And uh, But, yeah, he's, you know, going back to Tandorka, got the, the most runs in test cricket. But, you know, he, he can't replicate the feats of Sir Donald Bradman. It's, it's very hard. I, I always don't like it when we make comparisons. You mentioned Harry Brook earlier. People are comparing him to Bradman. You can't really do that because Bradman was just in another league of his own. Um, I don't. I don't think Bradman hits over the top as as often or as um, willingly as Harry Brook does. No, um, I, I think we'll have to wait probably ten years before we can start to assess Harry Brook's mm. place in the pantheon of of, of great players. Um, every there's every indication he'll be up there, but. Um, yeah, it's a little early days. He's been playing Test cricket for only a, a short while so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of this discussion. It's been a long one, but it's been enjoyable. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Well That's over it. three hours. So we're nearly to the end of play, to use that cricket term. We're nearly towards the end of the play for the day's proceedings. Uh, we're nearly to stumps. So we just mm -hmm. got one more question to answer, Neil, and then we'll, we'll finish up today's play. Going a bit over with the over rates. That's uh, is the problem today with 90 overs. We it's been a long session. We're, we're all ready for a drink, I think. We're all ready for a drinks break. Our, our voices yeah. have crackled under the pressure. <laughs> but uh, we need to go to the tea break and and, and um, have, a, have a refreshment. But uh, our last question, of, just on the ashes, Neil. Um, we've touched on it a little bit, but uh, what do you consider to be the greatest ashes moments at Lord's? Um, and the greatest Ashes moment in history, because there's so many, like Ian Botham's heroics in 1981 at Headingley, when <clears> England <throat> were following on, he scored 140-odd with Graham Dilley at the other end, who sadly mm. passed away. Brilliant partnership. Bob Bob Willis, the late great Bob Willis, took eight wickets. People thought he was on drugs, but he was just on the, in the zone. He just yeah. took eight wickets. And then Lillian Marsh put a bet on 500 to 1 with the electronic scoreboard first time there at the ground. And they got some money because England actually won. And then the next test of that series, he, Ian Botham got 5 for 1 in one spell. And England won that test. And, and obviously you mentioned it earlier with Botham about um, the pair at Lords in that series. He was captain and then soon sacked and Mike Brearley was brought back in. Um, he was a very good people person. He was a very good captain, Mike Brearley. Um, and uh, they brought him back for that. Um, you, know, you know, even though it didn't count for the Ashes, but the centenary test was a good moment as well. Mm -hmm. um, many great moments like uh, Amazing Adelaide, 2006-07, that test match that went down to the wire, Shane Warne bowling from one end at the cathedral end of the Adelaide Oval, which is the scoreboard end, and he bowled one session straight from that end. Um, Australia won that test match from nowhere, went on to win that series 5-0. You have Shane Warne's 700th wicket at the MCG, which was quite a proud moment. Um, 2005 Ashes, Edge Bastion, England winning by two runs, Kasparich mm -hmm. getting caught down the leg side, and Richie Benno said um, in that famous commentary, um, I think he said, uh, Bowden, and then you know, Billy Bowden mm -hmm. raised the crooked finger of doom and gave Kasparich out. Um, so many great moments in, in the history of Ashes cricket. It's very hard to just pinpoint one, isn't it, Neil? But uh, what do you consider to be the best moments at Lords in Ashes cricket and also overall? Um, I think we've probably mentioned the, the, the highlights I'd, I'd pick out at Lords already, which would be um, that 
great win in 2009, which was the first for 75 years um, by England, and also the um, the Headley Verity um, wicket-taking efforts and how he how he tied Don Bradman up, a man who scored off virtually every ball he faced, um, to the point where he was forced to hit out and just sky the ball straight up in the air. It's it's just astonishing to think, you know, however friendly the conditions might have been to the bowler, how much skill and concentration and match awareness it, it, it would have taken to achieve that against the best batter the world's ever seen. So Headley Verity's wicket-taking haul in 1934, I, I would say, is, is definitely one of my greatest moments at Lords, um, probably Ashes or any in any other sense either. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> away from Lords, uh, you just mentioned the, the, the Edgbaston win in, in 2005, which I remember mm. watching on television, and I actually had, um, I was just watching the, the highlights from Wellington a couple of nights yeah. ago, and, and the, the denouement there was, was bringing back all sorts of memories, good and otherwise, yeah. of the tension mm. as, as that match came to a conclusion. Um, and that, that was one of those, that whole 2005 series was just such an intense experience, not, not simply because we'd, um, we'd not won an Ashes series as England for, for so long, um, but also because the quality of the cricket was so great that almost anything could happen at any moment. You'd watch Shane Warne strolling up to the wicket to turn his arm over, and you'd know that that ball could bring a, a wicket. However, you know, however well the the batsman at the other end was playing. Same thing with Glenn McGrath, particularly those two bowlers. I mean, there was just a, a let such a level of tension um, and such a requirement to to work hard for runs when facing those two that it was it was impossible not to feel. <laughs> As well as you were enjoying it, you were also very stressed watching it if yes. you wanted one side or the other to win. Um, and the, the, the cricket was so tight and so hard fought. And then you come to the end of that match at Headingley, at, um, at Edgbaston, and yeah. suddenly from thinking England had it sewn up to thinking they'd blown it, and then Harmison bowls what really wasn't that great a ball. It was a, mm. it was a, a long hop down the leg side. You know, if Ricky Ponting had been facing, he would mm. have lapped it to square leg for four or six. But it was Kasprovitz, as you say, and um, Geraint Jones yep. uh, had good footwork to get down the leg side in time, and, and that was that. And then you, I, I still remember seeing Brett Lee sink to his haunches mm. after that decision was given. And, you know, we, we all remember Andrew Flintoff coming up to console him a, a moment or two later. But just seeing that deflation of a cricketer who'd been so pumped up, had worked so hard, was so determined and thought he'd got over the finish line practically. And then at the very last moment, it's taken away from him and he's like a deflated balloon. Um, it, it was hard not to feel sorry for him. Even in that moment of triumph, which every England cricket fan wanted, yeah, um, I, I can't think of any moment that illustrates the drama and tension of Test cricket better than that. Whether we're talking Ashes or otherwise, so that would definitely have to be one of my great moments. And then I'm, I'm going to conclude by 
going back to a, a moment you've also mentioned, um, Headingley 81, which like many of my generation was uh, the match that really stimulated my love of cricket. I don't remember Ian Botham batting, but I do remember Bob Willis steaming mm. down the hill from the Kirkstall Lane end with his hair flying behind him and his, his mad eyes staring at the batsmen. Um, mad eyes that continued as he as he ran off the field at the end. It was just, as you say, he was in the zone. He was on a different planet. Um, and it was that day, that moment, that bowling spell um, that, that turned the game and the series on its head because even after Botham's innings, Australia didn't need that many to win. It was 120-odd. Mm. And without Bob Willis's fabulous bowling, another cricketer we've sadly lost in, in recent years far too early. Um, uh, that that whole history of um, the series and possibly in Botham's career would have been very different. Yes, absolutely. And he was a wonderful cricketer, Ian Botham. Um, mm. Wonderful performances as an all-rounder. Um, at that time, especially with the other all-rounders like Imran Khan, um, you know, and um, those other, Richard Hadley as well, Kapil Dev, um, great all-rounders in that era, and he was one of them. Mm. Um, if I had to choose an Ashes moment from, well, not just Lords, but uh, Ashes in general, I'd probably go with Adelaide Oval, amazing Adelaide, mm. just because I've been there. I, I'm from Adelaide. What a test match that was. Just watching the highlights, mm. just unbelievable. Michael Hussey, still remember him. Anderson, he's still playing now, James Anderson. And that was like 2006, six seven. He's still playing. He's well into his 40s. Um, bowling this ball outside off stump and Hussey, one of my favourite players, Michael Hussey, gritty cricketer, left-hander, hit it through the covers and went to the boundary. Him raising his hands up in, in the bat and the Australian team coming um, that that game should have been a draw, but I liked Shane Warne's attitude. He said, no, nah, it's not a draw. We're going to win. And he bowled well and he took wickets. The run out of Bell drama, England were playing for survival and they went on to lose that Ashes series 5-0 because that test match in Adelaide pretty much changed the course of that series. So I'll probably consider that to be one of my favourites. But, you know, it's up to you, really. Personal choice, I suppose. There, there will always be personal memories associated with these things. Well, um there's, there's no absolute objective greatest moment um, in Ashes cricket. Yeah. And there have been so many great moments, so many stories, personal stories around them. I mean, just think of the first match, that, that, that test at the Oval in 1882, when it was so tense that reportedly um, we know one spectator died at the, the height of the tension, um, probably from a pulmonary embolism. Another one is reported to have chewed through the um, handle of his umbrella. I don't, I'm not sure I believe that one, but mm. um, it's a great story. Um, but it do, does illustrate the tension and drama that, that we've seen in Ashes cricket throughout its history. Um, the odds are we'll have a bit more of that over the coming months. Yeah, absolutely. With England playing baseball and doing that now, it's <laughs> going to be an exciting series. Yeah. But even for me, just watching Ashes series in England from Australia, obviously time difference, late at night. Mm. I remember the last Ashes where Australia won, well, retained the Ashes at Old Trafford where Steve Smith got 200 and I uh, still remember the last wicket, Josh Hazelwood bowling, um, got rid of Craig Irvington, it was, LBW, and they had to review it. But my finger was straight up. Being an umpire myself, you just know it's out. It was plum. Yeah. I was like that. Four o'clock in the morning here in Australia, watching that test match, fourth test, Steve Smith came back. We didn't mention it about him and Joffre Archer, um, that 
famous battle where he got hit um, mm-hmm. and Archer was bowling rapid and Smith, you know, courage, especially you need courage as a batter facing fast bowling, that quality. But I still remember that wicket to this day and that's probably one of my special moments and I'm pretty sure I woke up my whole neighbourhood screaming, yelling at the TV and say, we've done it. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't win the series outright and it was 2-2 obviously, but hopefully Australia can win their first Ashes series outright in England since Steve Waugh did it in 2001, which was another Ashes moment I forgot to mention. Steve Waugh's famous century at the Oval with his calf. Both his calves yes. were raising his bat like I, that. Um, I gritty well. cricketer, Steve Waugh. Um, and his last ball, of the century, last ball of the day, century at the SCG, uh, where he hit Richard Dawson through the covers before. And Bill Laurie said he's done it. Um, <laughs> a century, last ball of the day for... And he was under pressure at that time, Steve Waugh, as well. Mm. That could have been the end of his test career. That could have been his last test. But he played on for another year and retired against India the next summer. But so many Ashes moments. Um, 1989, when Australia came over. One four nil on the best of six. And mm. they said at the time of the press in England, um, the worst side, to, worst Australian touring side to tour England. That's always about England. That's always, bad, that's always a bad move when you say that. You're setting yourself up. As, yeah. As a, as they a went, they went on to win 4-0 with Alan Border and Bob Simpson really turned that Australian team around and started mm. the dominance. Mm. And there's so many Ashes moments over the years. I think I remember one, the Vazarium situation. I think that pitch that had Vazarium on it and Derek Underwood took wickets. Yes. That, uh, that was 1968, wasn't it, I think? Um, mm-hmm. Yes, it was a bit of Vazarium on the pitch, a bit of a fungus. The outfield was lushed and green, and the pitch was like this dark, sort of dry colour because apparently the grounds, groundsman said, well, it has a fungus, Vizarium. <laughs> and he was deadly. Well, that was his nickname, Deadly Underwood. It was. It was, it was he was more of a medium pacer who can bowl spin, mm. but if, if you put him on a wet wicket with a bit of moisture, geez, you could run through sides like that. And he certainly did that to Australia in that Ashes series. There he he was a great goal. That, that combination of Underwood and Knott took an awful lot of wickets for England and Kent. Um, yes, a pretty good keeper, Alan Knott, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty good keeper for England. Um, and so many great players that have played in the Ashes on both sides. It's just oozing with history. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I know it's been a long chat. We've nearly spoken for all over four hours. So this episode's mm-hmm. going to be a multi-part episode, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and, and speak about Lord's history, MCC, what you do in the museum. Uh, I've learned so much from listening to you speak. And I hope everyone has gained something from this episode that we've done with Neil today. And I hope you can take out something about Lord's that you didn't know before. But, uh, but Neil, um, just to finish off, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to get into this field of being a cricket historian? What sort of advice would you give to buddying young cricket historians like myself? Um, <clears throat> I would say join a society like the ACS um, or the Cricket Society. Um, become a member of a cricket-loving community. Get to know people. Um, read all you can about the history of the game. Find an area that, that particularly interests you. You know, I, I wrote a, a, a book a few years ago. Um, about the summer of 1988, when England had four captains in a series against the West Indies. Yeah. And, and the reason that came about was because I was 
I was um, researching something completely different. Um, and I actually read an interview with Peter May, the England chairman of selectors, just after he'd taken over as chairman of selectors in 81. And he picked Keith Fletcher to, to captain a tour to India. And he was asked by Christopher Martin Jenkins uh, for a cricketer interview. You just picked Keith Fletcher. He's 37 years old. He hasn't played test cricket for six or seven years. Is this a long-term appointment? And Peter May said, well, of course, there's no point chopping and changing. And I immediately thought, well, how, how do you get from that to four captains in a summer? Mm. Um, and I looked around and I realized no one had written a book on it. Um, and there are bound to be other opportunities. I mean, Ashley Gray um, wrote The Unforgiven, one of the great cricket books of recent years about um, those West Indian rebel cricketers who toured South Africa. Great book about a fascinating subject. Nobody had thought to write that before. Well, I tell her I had actually thought to write it before, but I'd never got around to it and actually beat me to it and did a very good job. Um, so there, there are those stories out there waiting to be discovered and told by a new voice. That's what you want to do. Don't, don't expect to, to make a fortune out of it, but you'll have a very rewarding time if, if, if you dive into this area of cricket history. You'll meet lots of interesting people. Um, you'll become part of the cricketing family more than you are as, as just a spectator. And you you won't you won't regret doing so, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, go out, do a bit of research, um, and find out what this great game has in store. Because there's so many stories to be told and discovered, and um, you know you get a real buzz from doing that. So uh, thank you for that, Neil, for those uh, kind words and wise words without advice there. So uh, Neil, if people want to visit Lords in terms of the museum or a tour or uh, see the museum or experience what Lords has to offer. Uh, where should people go in terms of um, inquiring for that? Um, you can visit our website, lords.org, and you'll find details of, of how to get on the Lords tour through that. Um, you can also, if you, if anyone wants to research in the library, you can just uh, email us at the address I gave earlier, mcclibrary at mcc.org.uk. Um, if, if you happen to be in the ground at Lords for the test match during the summer, the, the museum will be open free entry from gate opening until just before the close of play. Come along, have a, have a browse. You know, I'll probably be in there myself. You can come and talk to me. You can come and talk to one of my team. Um, where we've got a very knowledgeable group of people in there who can, who can help to tell the story of stories of the exhibitions and the objects that are on display, um, and just come and soak up the atmosphere. Absolutely. Um, no doubt you'll be busy this summer, of course. I, I believe Ireland are playing a test match at Lords. Yep, we've got um, Ireland at the start of June and then Australia at the end of June. So it's going to be a very, very busy um, period that month. And then we'll, we'll have a little break in July and then we've got the 100 coming up in August, which is always a, a major yeah. event now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it hosts the uh, final, the 100 as well, which is quite... Yep, a we've got 100's finals day as well. And one of the great things about that is you, you get a double header, which is... The women's game and the men's game and and you get a great crowd for both with a lot of young people in which is which is encouraging to see absolutely um encouraging the younger people younger generation to come and watch mm -hmm. cricket um it may be a different form of cricket which is um not to everyone's liking but um, at least it's encouraging the younger people to come in and watch this great mm -hmm. game at a wonderful splendid venue to to use that word or a marvelous venue to quote richie benno one of his <laughs> favorite words that he used over the years in commentary Thank you so much, Neil, and thank you, everyone, for 
for watching or listening to this very long discussion with Neil to talk about the history of Lord's Cricket Ground and the MCC. I've certainly learned a lot today, um, and, and hopefully everyone's learned a lot as well. So um, thank you, Neil, once again for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Until next time, keep safe, and bye for now. Hi everyone, hope you enjoyed part 5 of our historical series episode looking back at the history of Lord's Cricket Ground and the MCC with Head of Heritage and Collections, Neil Robinson. I hope you enjoyed listening to Neil and I talk about the Ashes. It was great fun talking to Neil about the history of Lord's Cricket Ground and the MCC. I hope all of you learnt more about the history of Lord's Cricket Ground and the MCC. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to our historical series episode looking back at the history of Lord's Cricket Ground and the MCC with Head of Heritage and Collections, Neil Robinson.